0: Buddha's teachings can be characterized as a search for true happiness. He calls it the noble search. Search for happiness in things that don't age, don't grow ill, that don't die. Things that don't change. But we have to use things that change in order to find that happiness. Which means that we have to develop the right attitude toward change as it happens. Of course, as we look around us in the world, especially drawn to our attention this year that things change an awful lot and they can change radically it's not simply that they change sometimes that change destroys things and relationships that we've been investing a lot in in our hopes for happiness it would be heartless to say heartless to say just accept the change give up trying to fight change what that ends up is a low level depression We have to learn how to deal with our grief over the change that has left us bereft in a way that doesn't defeat our search for true happiness. <laughs> Think of the reading that we had with King Vasanthi coming to see the Buddha, came in the middle of the day. The, king, the Buddha says, what have you been doing all day, great king? And the king says, Oh, well, the typical things that people are crazy about power will tend to do, remarkably frank. And the Buddha says, suppose there were a trustworthy person to come from the east, saying there's a huge mountain crushing all living beings as it's moving in from the east, crushing all living beings in its path. Another reliable person were to come from the west, another one from the south, another one from the north. All in all, four mountains are moving in from the four directions, crushing all living beings. Given this destruction of life and given how hard it is to find a human life, what would you do? The king says, What else could be done but Dharma conduct, right conduct, skillful deeds, and meritorious deeds? And the Buddha goes on to say, Okay, I tell you, a great king, I inform you. Aging, illness, and death are moving in, crushing all living beings in their path. What are you gonna do? And the king says again, what else could I do? But dharma conduct, right conduct, skillful deeds, meritorious deeds. Now notice what this is not saying. He's not saying just accept let the mountains roll over me. Actually, skillful and meritorious deeds, aim at a happiness that's not destroyed by death, and the mountains can't crush. In other words, you're putting up a fight against certain aspects of change. They're gonna come out victorious, that's what the Buddha promises, That he, he calls his path the path of victory. Also, another thing he's not saying is, is just ignore what's happening, pretend that there's no great loss. Just focus on your practice. Actually, part of the dharma conduct is to acknowledge the loss and to use that sense of loss as motivation to continue put more effort into your practice, seeing the, the value of something that might not change as a genuine source for your happiness. So we're going to be discussing some of the implications of what the king said to the Buddha, what it means to engage in dharma conduct, right conduct, skillful deeds, meritorious deeds. There are going to be two parts to the discussion. This morning, we're going to be talking about grief over change that has left you bereft. I was talking a while back to a friend who's a psychologist, and she was noting that people are dealing with a lot of grief these days. If they don't know how to handle grief properly, it turns into depression. Grief not only over the loss of individual people, but also the loss of institutions that we thought we could rely on social order than we thought we could depend on. So we have to learn how to deal skillfully with grief if we're not going to have it, let it defeat us in our our practice. So that's going to be the topic for the morning. This afternoon, we're going to focus on skillful and meritorious deeds and the relationship to developing wisdom and discernment. All too often you hear that there are two types of Buddhism. There's the Buddhism that's aimed at merit, and there's the Buddhism that's aimed at release, as if they were two totally separate things. And they're not. The lessons you learn as you develop what the Buddha called the acts of merit, being generous, being virtuous, developing universal goodwill. You learn a lot of lessons that are going to be important and they're going to be very useful on the path to going on beyond simply a good rebirth or pleasant life in this lifetime. They teach you the important lessons about the path to all the way to awakening. So this morning we're going to how to deal with grief and how we use grief as motivation. One month to get past the grief itself and then to use it as a motivation to practice. There was another passage where, he, the king Visenity, where he's there talking to the Buddha and one of his courtiers comes out and whispers in his ear that Queen Malika has died. Now Queen Malika was one of his favorite queens. And the king just breaks down. depression yeah, a refreshing, moping, lost for words. And the Buddha's first instruction to him is to reflect on the universality of loss. When was it that anything that was born would not age, grow ill, and die? This happens to everybody. This is our first step in dealing with grief. And all too often we have that sense that the universe is dumping on me or my family or the people who are close to me, singling us out for unfair attention. Whereas actually this is what happens to everybody. We have to keep that in mind. That's what the Buddha would have you accept, that these things will happen. The second step that the Buddha recommends is that you give expression to your grief. You don't just bottle it in, put up a stiff upper lip. You express your appreciation, particularly express your appreciation for the person who's passed away. As he said, if you see that it's anything that's accomplished by eulogies, gifts dedicated to the memory of the person who's passed away, go ahead and do that. Until you find you've reached the stage where it's being you're being self-indulgent. The third stage, he says, is to realize you still have work to do. There's work to be done. Human life still has meaning. and There is a, a great deal that can be accomplished, so you don't want the grief to get, debilitate you. So those are the three steps. First, reflect on the universality of, of loss, that everybody has to go through this. Second, Get, express your appreciation for what you have lost. Realize, okay, it is something genuine that you have been deprived of. You don't just dismiss and say it didn't mean anything to me. Again, that would be heartless. And then the third step is to realize, okay, I still have work to do. I can't let my grief get in the way. Now, these three steps parallel. They're, they're basically three steps in managing grief. But the Buddha goes on to talk about how to get past the get past grief entirely. And it involves the same three three types of steps. First, the universality. When you accept what can't be changed, the fact that this happens to everybody, you move on to the fact that you have to have compassion for everybody. You start thinking about the fact that all these other people that you meet with have endured loss the same way you, what you have. And you start looking at them with new eyes. You look into their hearts and you say, well, they have, they have lost too. They've had pain too. And the human response to that is compassion. This way, it, your grief turns into an emotion that's more ennobling and actually is useful for developing good qualities and that help other people. This relates to a, the aesthetic theory that they had back in India in those days. That when they said that when you saw it, unpleasant things on the stage. People could still enjoy it. And the question was, why is that? It's not they're, not, they're not being sadistic. It's simply that it's a human reaction. You see somebody else undergoing loss and you happen to, you taste an emotion. And the taste of that emotion is actually pleasant. The emotion itself may be unpleasant, but the little bit of a taste you get is pleasant. It's enjoyable. And they say when you, you see someone grieving on stage, the audience tastes compassion. And there's something ennobling about compassion. It lifts you out of grief. It puts you into a place which which is an emotion which is much more amenable, much more actually can be enjoyable. It is also motivating you to do something that is more than just sitting around and grieving for your loss. You begin to realize, hey, there are things I could do for other people to help them. But then from compassion the buddha says we think even more about the universality of loss and you begin to realize this is endless unless we find some way out this is what gives rise to another emotion which the buddha calls sun which can be translated as dismay or even terror think about the prospect of getting reborn again and again and again and having to suffer the same loss again and again no matter where you go this gives rise to a desire to go beyond not just the suffering of that particular grief, but the causes of all grief. Remember that the Buddha asked the monks one time, which is greater, the tears you have shed or the water in the oceans? This is the Of course, it's the tears that you have shed over these many, many lifetimes. Think about that the next time you go out and look at the ocean. There's less water there than there has been in the tears that you've shed in the many lifetimes you've been through. He says, when you think about this, It should give rise to a desire to gain release. And this relates to a distinction the Buddha makes between two different kinds of stress, two different kinds of joy, two different kinds of equanimity. He has what he calls house-based distress, house-based joy, house-based equanimity. Then there's renunciation-based distress, renunciation-based joy, renunciation-based equanimity. The house-based distress is when you don't get the sight, sounds, smells, tactile sensations and ideas that you would like. The house-based joy is when you do get those sensory impressions that you would like. House-based equanimity is when you are equanimous in the face of whatever arises in the six senses. Pronunciation-based distress is when you realize okay, there is a deathless that people have attained. I haven't attained that yet. It's distress in the sense that it's it really, you makes you realize there's work to be done. But it actually opens the way to some hope. In other words, it is possible to go beyond, this. I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm, it is possible. So this is a distress that contains an element of hope. Because house-based distress, as you said, well, just hope, well you hope I get pleasant sights, sounds, smells, taste, tactile sensations again. But then you realize you're going to lose them again renunciation-based distress gives you the motivation to follow the path that will lead to that deathless happiness. So it says if you're enjoying house-based distress, try to convert it to renunciation-based distress. In other words, the desire to put in the effort to follow the path. And that will then lead to renunciation-based joy as you begin to realize the results of following that path. And then the equanimity that comes when you finally reach the goal. So, this renunciation based distress contains an element of hope. It is possible to get out. So, the acceptance here, you know, the acceptance of universality and the loss, is that this will be the way things will continue unless you do something about it. But you're unwilling to accept the idea that you're going to stay in this condition. So, it's important you can see this distinction. All too often, we're taught that Buddhism is all about accepting change. Buddha saying, well, there's some changes your aspects of change that you do accept and other aspects that you don't. Accept the fact that this is the way things will continue to be unless you get out. But realize it is possible to get out, and you're not willing to stay here. So the lessons of thinking about the universality of grief in a way that motivates you to look for something that's beyond beyond change. The second step in appreci- expressing appreciation. Buddha talks about when you've lost somebody in the family, you practice and then you dedicate the merit of that practice to those who helped you. This is why in Buddhist countries, it's a typical thing that you, you would observe the precepts, you give gifts, you meditate after someone has passed away, and dedicate the merit to that person. That's where i are expressing appreciation. At so the same time, you're following the path. You're also following the path as an expression of gratitude for the Buddha, what he went through. You read the Buddha's life story, he went through an awful lot to find this path. And you think it would be a shame to have it get lost in my generation or get lost with me. And so you work on developing the path as an expression of appreciation to the Buddha. You practice the Dhamma, as I say, in accordance with the Dhamma, not not in accordance with your preferences, but with what the Buddha actually taught. You do it for the purpose of giving rise to disenchantment, dispassion, (coughs) leading to that renunciation-based joy and equanimity. Finally, the third point on the work that needs to be done. Remember, the second knowledge on the night of the Buddha's awakening, he saw beings dying and being reborn again and again and again. And the way they were born was based on their actions. Their actions were based on their views. And the views were based on who they respected. If, if you had disrespect for the noble ones, you had wrong view. You tended to act in unskillful ways. Your rebirth was not going to be pleasant. If you have respect for the noble ones, develop right view. Your actions will be more skillful and they will tend to lead to better rebirth. And so you realize that's the whole reason why we continue to suffer death and rebirth again and again and again. The reason lies inside. It lies in terms of our actions and the things that we allow to motivate us to, to act. So that's where the work has to be done. This is why we meditate because the sources for the problem of our suffering do lie inside. There may be all kinds of horrible things happening outside, but the question is, do we have to suffer from them? And the answer is no. We can train our minds in such a way so that no matter how bad things get outside, we don't have to suffer from it. And this relates to that passage where Ananda and Sarabhutra have a conversation where Sarabhutra is saying, he reflected you know, is there anything who's lost who would cause him any grief, and you realize that nothing would cause him any grief. And Ananda's sitting there saying, wait a minute, what, what, what if the Buddha died? No grief then? And Sariputta says, well, I'd reflect that a great person who's been useful for the world, helpful for the world, it's a sad thing that he dies. What could be expected? Every, anyone who's born is going to have to pass away. And Ananda makes an interesting observation. It's a sign that Sariputta has no conceit. Now, conceit here has a special meaning. It means your sense of who you are, your, the way you identify yourself, I am, And basically, I'm just pointing out the fact that when we feel loss over another person's passing away or we feel lost when they're sick or something, it's because we have identified ourselves or identified part of ourselves with that person. Our happiness has to depend on that person. I cannot be happy without that person. There's a lot of I in there. And so when we're grieving over the loss of a person, or loss of something else, we're grieving over a loss of part of ourselves. This connects to the fact we've been feeding off of other people in other situations. We define ourselves by our attachments. In fact, this is what the Buddha said, this is what it means to be a being. Wherever there's attachment, there's going to be suffering. So we're going to have to look into how we identify ourselves as as a large part of the problem. Now, ironically, it wasn't the case that the Buddha passed away before Sariputta. Sariputta passed away first. And Ananda was the one who took the news to the Buddha. And as he takes the news to the Buddha, he says, You know, if the, everything got dark, north, south, east, and west, all the directions got dark, I lost my bearings, hearing that Sariputta had passed away. Then the Buddha asked him, Has Sariputta taken virtue with him? No. Concentration? No. Discernment? No. Release, knowledge of release? No. All the good things in life are still here. This is how the Buddha defines the good things in life, the things that we can practice. So this gives focus. To that sense that, okay, there is still good work to be done. The good things can still be done, no no matter how much we've lost in the past. So we realize, okay, if we place our hopes on things that will pass away, finding happiness in things that will pass away, and we're going to be disappointed. But if we learn how to manipulate cause and effect, develop the good practices that the Buddha laid out, it can lead to something that lies beyond anything that can be touched by grief, anything that can be touched by loss. By following these practices, we're motivated by renunciation-based distress. We arrive at renunciation-based joy and then equanimity. We're no longer attached. We're no longer defined as even a being at that point. The point I want to discuss a little bit in in a few minutes. That's that's where grief ends. Because as long as you're identifying yourself, defining yourself around something that's going to change, there's going to be grief. But if you find that you can arrive at something where you no no longer have to identify who you are, you no longer have to need any attachment. It's not because you tell yourself, don't be attached, but because you found something that's totally satisfactory, then you can let go. And that would be the end, of grief. Now, this point about no longer being defined as a being, this, this requires some explanation. Sometimes you hear it said that on the ultimate level of truth, there's nobody there, either us or in the people that we've lost, which is heartless. I had a student a while back who broke up with a partner of a long, from a very long relationship. Let's call him George, and her name was Martha. And he talked to a Dharma student, Dharma teacher, excuse me. And the Dharma teacher said, you know well, you have to realize there never really was any George, there never really was any Martha. And as he told me later, he realized it was really bad advice. But the question is, well, why would the Buddha say there really is nobody there? And it's important to note the Buddha never said that. You sometimes hear, as I said, there's no being on the ultimate level of truth, that we exist only in conventional truth. The Buddha never taught that there were two levels of truth. and he never used any of the terms that were invented to describe those two levels. For him, all language is convention. Even when he talks about aggregates, sense spheres, properties, elements, those are conventions. When When he was asked what a being is, he answered straightforwardly. A being is attachment to the five aggregates how we define ourselves and that's part of the process of becoming he gives the analogy of children playing with mud houses as long as the children are infatuated with their little mud houses they will play with them and again and again and again keep building more ones and they never seem to have enough and then when they lose interest in the mud houses they kick them and destroy them In the same way he says, we, we get fascinated with the, with the aggregates and we attack, get attached to them. And these are processes that are very unstable. We're caused in playing and building our little houses for ourselves, in other words, taking on an identity again and again. We've caused a lot of suffering for ourselves and for others. And even as the body approaches death, right, we haven't had enough. One, one, usually one is one, another one. Again, but there's one time when the Buddha was asked, how does one being go from one lifetime to another? And again, he never said there is no being. He simply said, it's through craving. There's clinging to craving. We'll carry you on to the next body. He gives the analogy of a fire. The fire has to depend on the wind to go from one house to the next house. The wind, and the physics they had at that time, the wind clings to the, to the wind, excuse me, the fire clings to the wind, and gets carried across. So again, the Buddha never said there is no being there. He said simply that we create the sense of our being a being by our attachments. And so the way past this is to engage in a value judgment, to decide that it's not worth it. And for most of us, we're afraid of that. We say, if well, I don't have any attachments, who am I? Where am I going to be? And the Buddha says, it's not going to be an annihilation. There's going to be ultimate happiness, actually, when you let go. We take that on faith but you have to see that it's not worth the process of getting attached again and again and again. This is the, where the Buddha gives the analogy of the children destroying their houses. Or the Buddha himself said, you search for the house builder throughout birth after birth after birth, and finally realize by dismantling the house, you found the house builder to the point where there would never be anyone to build the house again. So, it's not that we're going to go out of existence when we let like go of our attachments. It's just that we're no longer defined as a being. We're beyond description. Remember what the Buddha said you can't define an arahant as either existing, non existing, both or neither. Now, if there was nobody there to begin with, Buddha wouldn't have had to be so careful about that. He would just say, okay, there's nobody there. There never was. It's more that we're defining ourselves through our attachments. We learn how to stop doing that. And what we gain is not a loneliness or, or an annihilation, but we actually find a limitless freedom. And that's the basis for renunciation joy. So the pattern here is that we realize the universality of grief. Use, use it to reflect on not, not only do we suffer from loss, but other people around us are suffering from loss. It gives rise to compassion. So we learn how to treat one another better. Same time it gives rise to a sense of sangwega or terror at the idea that we have to keep on doing this again and again and again. It gives rise to a desire, maybe it'd be better to get out. And we practice in appreciation, both for the people we've lost, we dedicate merit to them, the appreciation to the Buddha for having taught this path. And then we get to work, looking at our attachments, developing the factors of the path trying to learn how to stop defining ourselves in ways that are going to inevitably lead to loss. We find that as we develop the path in this way, our sense of who we are is going to change as we practice. Remember, your sense of yourself is basically a strategy. When we lack happiness, we need to have a strategy for finding it. We develop the sense of self as a strategy. The is teaching us how to develop a skillful sense of self, is competent, able to do the path, able to follow the path. You will benefit from it. We use that sense of self to pry away our unskillful attachments, and then, as we ha- begin to have experience of the deathless, then we can pry loose our attachments, even to that skillful sense of self, realizing that we don't need it anymore. It's in this way that you let go, not in defeat, but in victory. You found something that's, that's changeless. That's where all of this is aimed, as I said. What Buddha calls you know, the noble search, the search for our happiness, is based on something that doesn't age, doesn't grow ill, and doesn't die. So we don't deny our grief. We recognize our grief. We give expression to it as we see a skillful. And then we use that sense of grief to realize, okay, loss is a serious thing. How much longer do you want to continue experiencing is lost again and again and again there is a way out and it's through following the
1: path um i was just curious uh um the anusaya is that is that making does that make reference to um what keeps us hooked
0: Yeah, there's, there's seven altogether. I can't remember the list right off the top of my head. But they are underlying tendencies that will then turn into defilements, if you don't watch out.
1: I'm sorry, turn into?
0: Defilements.
1: Oh, yes, yes. And it, that's kind of our the, our karmic rut ruts?
0: It's old, old habits that are just really, really deeply entrenched, yeah. It's our, yeah. our karmic ruts.
2: Okay, all right, yeah, thank
0: you. Because, as the Buddha said, you, you know, you can have some people, you, like little babies, don't have any of the fetters. They can't have a fetter of, you know, attachment to views because they don't even know what a view is. But they do have potential that, you know, once once they develop, you know, enough sense, you know, sensibility about what's going on around them, they hear about views. They're going to latch on as, as soon as they can. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. The 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 little personalities. Oh yeah. Yeah. Even in animals, it seems. (laughs) Thank you.
3: Um, This may be slightly off topic, um, but the in the teachings of the uh, the levels of the cosmos, um, the teacher uh, from Arrow River, Ajahn Prunadamo says, and uh, other. Monastics have said that nothing passes on as you uh, can carry into new rebirths, nothing of the the being. So it's always new each time. But then I wondered, the Buddha made a promise eons before he became the Buddha or he made a vow to um, perfect himself so that he would be able at some point to be a Buddha, so I. So how how does that work? Um, that he, if nothing continued on, that was this being that he was still able eons later to to be at this level to to then fulfill that.
0: Fulfill his determination. Yes. Okay, um, again, the Buddha never said there is no being there. When this wanderer asked him, "How does a being go from one life to the next?" the Buddha said, "Oh, you, you just latch on. You're craving. Excuse me. You cling to your craving, and the craving carries you on to the next 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 lifetime. And certain habits get carried over. You know, they talk about what they call the seven seven noble treasures. You develop these good qualities, and they get carried over. So nothing, none of the good qualities get lost." problem is that none of your bad qualities get lost either you tend to carry them as as habits so
3: so so these good qualities that he was developing through each lifetime whether he was an animal or or whatever when he was non-human or whether he was in the angelic realms they they stayed with him what would his determination his um, commitment then still be realized whatever realm he would be in
0: right i mean it it was that he was to develop the perfections no matter where he was born depending on what the situation was which perfections needed work Um,
3: so he would have a some kind of consciousness of them some kind of realization
0: this is what this is why you know, when some people are able to have memories of previous lifetimes, there's still something that carries over, and it may not necessarily be that he could re- explicitly remember his determination. But there was there's something about you know when when you meet up with a particular teaching or a particular truth, and it's that really resonates with something that you've felt for a long time. I think that's can be explained that way. That you know, you you have the tendency. The Buddha talks about this that. So, like for example, if you've been memorizing a lot of dharma, and then you die and you go to heaven, you're going to forget about it for a while. But then something may remind you of it, in, in which case you say, "Oh yeah, I used to, I used to know that dharma," and that gives you a leg up on practicing. So there's a little, there's a little something that carries over an, an inclination toward the dharma if you've been developing it. If you've been developing it in the other direction, it's an inclination that goes the other way.
3: Thank you. That's
0: very helpful. There's a belief among uh, John, uh, John Lee's students that uh, John Lee was King Ashoka reborn. And when I found out about this, I, I got a biography of Ashoka and it had some of his edicts in there. And I read one of the edicts to John Fu, in which King Ashoka is saying to his ministers, okay, if you want to satisfy me as my servants, you have to know what I want before I do. And I read that to John Fueng, he said, 2,000 years, you never changed.
4: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that very succinct and uh, really nice uh, summary. Um, I wanted to ask about acceptance.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: You know, I, I I have a friend who 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 thinks that he doesn't want to go through this again, even though he has a fairly good life, and he says very clearly, "You know, I, I, I just want to let this all go. Uh, the next lifetime, you know, I don't want it anymore. But I have the sense, and I've had a lot of loss, as we all have, that it's not so much that I don't want to have any more loss in future lifetimes." but it's how do I deal with loss in this lifetime? And so there are skillful ways to do that. So there's the universality, there's using it to generate compassion and doing all those other things and that you can come to terms with the loss and be with the loss and be with the joys. 10,000 joys, 10,000 sorrows. So how, how do... And I I totally get that there's something beyond that's that's really blessed and blissful, but this is okay too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, <clears throat> uh, Joseph, you hadn't suffered enough loss yet, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I know when when, when you say ten thousand losses and ten thousand sorrows, it sounds like it all evens out, but I I think I think there's it, it goes heavier on the loss, especially when you realize when you've been working really hard on something, and then all it, and then the foundations just dissolve away. And say, "My gosh, all that work that has gone into what? All that effort has been put into maintaining that relationship, or effort has been going to build a particular project, see something through, and then it gets destroyed." You begin to realize this. Se- this all seems pretty hopeless. It's, you, have, you have to work on sangwega, just to realize that this, this, this is if you don't, if you say this is okay, it's going to be endless. You know, as you begin to realize, you look at your life, you say, "Well, I have my memories," but then your memories get to slip, or else the wrong memories start coming up—the memories of you know things that you very much would like to forget. Suddenly, they impress themselves in your mind. And you know, he so what do I have left? You know, For all that effort that went into it, what's left? I guess it has to hit you. So they make the comparison with the horse. You know, The horse, it, all it has to do is you say the word whip and it says, okay, I'm going. Another horse has to see the whip. Another horse has to feel the whip against its skin. Another horse has to feel the whip into its flesh. Another horse has to have the whip get into the bone before, it, before it's willing to go. So you have to ask yourself, which kind of horse do you want to be?
4: Yeah, you know, it just goes so it's so opposed to conventional psychological therapies that use meaning as a way to live your life in this lifetime. So, you know, man's search for meaning, Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's acceptance of the fact that there is there is suffering, there is sorrow, there is loss, there is change, and you you come to accept that. It's inevitable, but you you build on that and you build a life of meaning.
0: Well, you know, the Buddha offers meaning in the path. So this this is something that once you've accomplished, it's not going to be taken away from you. Because if, if your meaning is based on something that eventually you're going to lose anyhow, you say, wait a minute, that... It's beginning to seem kind of meaningless. The is offering something, once you've got it, you've got it. It's not going to be taken away.
4: Uh, hello. Hello from Belarus. Uh, I have a question uh, concerning uh, um, consciousness uh, without surface uh, Is it uh, the same? Um, I, I, I feel it's not the same, but what is the difference between the consciousness without surface and uh, for example, Mahayana um, term of Buddha nature. Buddha nature was... Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, these, these two things are very different. The Buddha nature mm-hmm. is your potential to become a Buddha and consciousness without that surface is the awareness of nirvana. When you're reaching around, it's not it's not a blanking out, it's not it's not annihilation. There is an awareness, an awareness of the of the depthless. And that's what mm-hmm. the consciousness without surface is.
4: I see. As uh, whereas
0: Buddha as I that is your potential to be to gain awakening.
4: Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, the second question, uh, if you please. Other um, animals or other um, creatures, beings, for example, hell, habitues, uh, or devas, produce karma, uh, produce results of karma as well as human beings.
0: Uh, you know, they, they talk about that some devas. Do good. Another day was they're just up there eating off their old karma. Mm-hmm.
4: But what about animals? Or, or mm-hmm. well,
0: an- animals? Animals have their to the extent that they have intentions. Yes, they are creating karma. Mm-hmm.
4: Okay. Thank you very much.
1: I, uh, I've i been trying to follow your advice to uh, uh, walk, walking meditation for 20 minutes a day. And uh, uh, I ran into problems of uh, walking in darkness. And I wonder if it's okay to walk with a headlight or if I should walk indoors. If I have like five meters, is it better to walk indoors?
0: Five meters is awfully short. You're going to get dizzy. Uh, I'd, I'd wear a headlight if I were you.
1: Thanks a lot. Hi, thank you. Um, I have a question about whether the Buddha talked about resistance to the ignoble ones. You said in the work that we do, we should give merit to to the noble ones. But what about the ignoble ones? What about the people or the...
0: Oh, you give merit to everybody.
1: Okay. And so when you see things being destroyed or people um, destroying things, <laughs> um, how do you approach them? How do, how do you <laughs> stay away from them? Or do you resist them? or?
0: Oh, it, it really depends on the situation. Whether you, you know, whether you feel that you could actually talk to them and, and get through to them.
1: So, so avoid argument, avoid... Um,
0: well, again, there, sometimes there, some people are, are actually serious in their arguments, they're, they're willing to listen. But yeah. if it's, the Buddha said, if the person is there just to make the argument and is not actually going to be willing to listen to what actually is the truth, it's not worth, it's not worth talking.
1: Well, what would there be about mass resistance? What, are, what about these marches and these, um, you know, community resistance things that are peaceful, that are simply a demonstration of
0: what is you, good, I assume. You could regard that as a kind of generosity that you're giving your time and giving your energy to what you think is a good cause. You feel inspired. Awesome? Just keep it. Easy.
2: Hi. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, my question is around hope. I heard it in passing in your talk. And uh, recently, I've come to view hope with great suspicion, as I find it often masks uh, desires, which I am perhaps not conscious of. And I'm wondering if you have any uh, advice to offer in terms of approaching hope with right relationship?
0: Okay, you have to look at what you're hoping for and ask yourself, you know, if I actually achieved what I hoped for, would it be a good thing? And then secondly, what is, in, in, in the case of just the possibility of this thing that I hope for, where does it rank in the realm of possibility? You know, for people in practicing the Buddhist path, the hope is for awakening. And we say, we you know, we can't prove that we're gonna have awakening, but we see people who have taught this path, who have followed this path, they seem to be reliable people. And as I say, all you need to do is be a human being and you can follow it. So I have, you know, you're a human being, you've got the qualifications. And so that's a case where you'd say that there's it's a reasonable hope, which you have to watch out for our unreasonable hopes. It's also reasonable in the sense that, you know, if you were to attain what they promised, it would be you know, a really excellent attainment, you'd be secure. But we have a lot of things that we hope for in life and if you actually get them, you find that you're actually putting yourself in more danger or there are other drawbacks that you haven't considered. So if you're gonna be hoping for something, you wanna look at it from all angles. Say, like, hey, if I got this, what would be the drawbacks? Am I prepared for that? Do you have an example of anything that you'd like to, particularly that you'd like to discuss?
2: Not in this context, okay. Though. But, so I'm hearing. Approach it perhaps from the lens of the, the danger, the gratification, the escape, kind of that. OK, thank you. Uh, I. Here, you know, John. I just wanted to, uh,
3: ask if you could just um, talk about that uh, saying of. Uh, lord buddha about uh, the house builder could you repeat that and then reflect on it if possible thank you
0: okay so he said for many many lifetimes he sought the house builder looking again and again i don't have that. let's see right west, the verse here on the right reading Okay, through the round of many births, I wandered, roamed without reward, without rest, seeking the house builder, painful as birth again and again. Okay, house builder here is it's the desire to go into a new state of becoming. Now state of becoming is when you take an identity on in a particular world of experience. Um, and that can be either on, on a momentary level in the mind where you say, you know, I'd like to have this and all of a sudden you become the person in your fantasy world. Mm-hmm focused on a desire, and there's a world that develops around that desire. Or else when, you, when the time comes when you're gonna be dying from this lifetime and you actually move into another identity in another world on a physical level, both of those are called becoming. And so it's the desire, it's the craving that keeps, keeps wanting to go and find new objects to desire and a, a new identity to take on in order to find those, des- those desired objects. And that also assumes the whole world around that particular origin. So that's, what, that's what the house builder is. And so when he sees the process of house building and how we put these processes of house building together, he realizes, okay, it's really empty. And it's all driven by the craving. When he's gotten to the point where he can put an end to the craving, that's the end of building new houses. So when you're destroying the house, doesn't mean that you destroy your identity. It means that you analyze it and you take it apart to the point where you have dispassion for it, because it's it's the passion that keeps it going, like the glue that holds all this together.
1: So
3: um, to rephrase that, going back to what you said, that that latching on of and then that causes the craving, that causes the rebirth. It could be a lifetime of rebirth, or it could be a momentary rebirth, like constantly thinking and imagining yourself in different scenarios, and then your mind wandering off. Right. Every time we latch on, we're building a
1: house.
0: Right, right. And the thing is that that momentary process, it's the same thing that's going to happen at death. So if you don't get that momentary process under control, that's what's going to carry you on to another lifetime.
1: Thank you, much.
5: Hi Ajahn. Most teachers translate metta as loving kindness. Well, your explanation of metta as goodwill makes more sense to me. There are other definitions, meanings and translations that are really widely used that you've disagreed with. How has it been for you in terms of your relationship with others in the Buddhist community in confronting those differences? And why do you think there is so much resistance in the mainstream to adopting what uh, what I would define as your definitions, which are correct, uh, in, in terms of definitions, meanings, and translations.
0: Oh, I don't know.
5: <laughs> but it, you may
0: have noticed I'm pretty much of a loner down here in San Diego. <laughs> yeah,
5: exactly. That makes it a lot easier. Um, so. What do you advise to those of us who agree with your translations on interacting with other teachers and their students, et cetera? Is it even useful to engage with other teachers and students who use the uh, the other meanings and translations of the Dhamma or does it just create confusion and conflict and should be avoided? Well, again, it depends on the individual teacher and the individual situation and and the way you raise the
0: issue. So say, hey, Tom, Jeff's got the right definition. Okay, how about how, how about this other definition? Which which do you think would be preferable? What's what's the advantage of goodwill as opposed to loving kindness? What's the advantage of loving kindness as opposed to goodwill? That kind of thing. Approach it in a more neutral way, non-confrontational. Then you find some people are happy to discuss. Other people don't want to discuss. And you say, okay, fine.
5: Well, there seems to be a smorgasbord of different. Teachers and teachings out there, and um, I'm often, you know, other people say, well, you should listen to this teacher or that teacher. But somehow over the years, um, when, when you get satisfied with a certain way of, uh, of hearing the Dhamma and listening, i.e., the way that you teach it, um, it seems like it's um, not really a useful uh, way to spend time. Would you disagree with that? Well, I when I was studying in Thailand,
0: it was, a, it was a time when a lot of famous Johns were still alive, and someone once said to me just that. You know, a lot of other famous of Johns alive. You know, um, why do you hang around with John Fuang all the time? Why don't you keep on moving around? <laughs> and I, you know, I haven't come to the
5: end of a John Fuang yet. Right. So basically, if you're satisfied, you're satisfied. Satisfied. Right, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah.
5: Thank you. <laughs>
4: Tanajan, uh, I have a question. As we die or get close to death, what are uh, skillful things that we can do at that moment or close to death?
0: Thank you. Close to death. One, you want to remember the good things you've done in this lifetime? Because you may be suddenly you know, finding yourself presented with the possibility that you may go to a very unpleasant place, and you have to remind yourself, no, I've got some good to me. I don't, I, it's not the case that I deserve to go to this bad place. That way your, your your state of mind will pull you up rather than getting pulled down. And then from that point, I just, I'd say, just focus on your breath, focus on your mind, focus on your awareness. And if there's any pain at the time, you say, okay, here's the pain, here's the breath, here's the awareness, which of them is going to end first? And you find that the, you know, the pain and the breath will end, but the awareness does not end. There'll be an awareness that goes on to the next lifetime. And the less burdened that is, then the better, the better the place you may go. And in fact, it is possible, the Buddha says, that it is possible to gain awakening at the moment of death. So practice for that if you can.
6: Just regarding concentration. Mm-hmm you are aware of uh, your uh, breathing or the perception of breathing and you are aware of your perception of uh, feelings and you are aware of, or you are focusing on uh, your mental states when it is concentrated or surpassed or gladdened, whatever it is, and your uh, distracting thoughts also. But when you say awareness, either I feel I am aware of all these things, but not what is that awareness? I'm either one of these things, either breathing our uh, feelings are the mental state but uh, what is that awareness when you say
0: okay the awareness there is is one of the aspects of the mind and you're trying to make the, the awareness as pure as possible and as, as equanimous as possible so that would be you know a state of mind with equanimity a state of mind that is devoid of passion that is devoid of anger that is devoid, devoid of delusion so that would come under mind states
6: So is the mind states itself is awareness?
0: For the time being, yes.
6: Okay. Yeah, just another quick question. When you have a, a good concentration for two three sessions a day, it's like, like of, uh, having too much sweet. You don't want to have any more sweet kind of way. You don't want to concentrate. So how do you handle that?
0: Okay, from that point, then you would say, okay, what, what is the topic that I need to contemplate? What is an issue in my life that I, you know, that still is bothering me? Here is my chance to use my concentration to contemplate that issue.
6: Thank
4: you. Hi, Janja. Um So, you know, when I when I get anxious, um, and I realize, okay, I, I am creating the anxiety myself, but. Um, it's a doing, but I can't find the sort of switch to switch it off. You know,
5: um,
4: so I, I think you said there's a five, the five aspects arising, passing away, um, the allure to it, and the escape. So I, I don't. I guess I don't see any of those. I only see that the anxiety is there, and I'm, you know, I'm doing it. How how do I switch it off?
0: Okay, you have, the first thing you have to realize is that you're not doing it continuously without stop. You'll be doing it and stopping, doing it and stopping it. So the first thing you wanna look for is go, when do I stop and then when do I pick it up again? Okay. Look for that.
4: And what about the allure,
0: you know? Allure, well, then the question is, once you see yourself picking it up again, you say, well, wait a minute, why do I wanna pick this up again? That's where, you, that's where you begin to see the allure, that there's something that pulls the mind yeah. pulls the mind. Many times can especially just- is anxiety, the idea that's the sense that if, if I'm anxious enough, maybe I can prevent the problem from happening.
4: Okay. Okay. Thank you very much, Ajahn.
0: Okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay, see you soon. Take care.